Lyrics of the Hub, your fan cast, brought to you by TV Series Hub. All right, Nerks, welcome back. I'm your host, Kelsey, and I am joined by my fellow host, Uber. <laughs> hey there. And we are excited to have our guest, Zach Stentz. It's lovely to be here. So you guys will probably know Zach most well as a writer from The Economist, although he has done a few indie movies like Thor and X-Men First Class, you know, just those tiny little movies. I, I call that my mumblecore phase. <laughs> <laughs> well, we are excited to have you on and, and talk about Rim of the World, but before we get started, I do want to say to you, thank you. Uh, thank you for Loki, <laughs> the best villain in the MCU. And thank you for uh, so much Coulson, because I know that both of those were uh, in in large part due to you. <laughs> so thank you for bringing us those characters. I, I, yeah, the, the, only, the only person more, more grateful is probably Clark Gregg and, and, <laughs> and Tom Hiddleston. Uh, but uh, no, we're, I, I'm, I'm very proud of the, the work that we did on Thor and in particular, uh, in, in particular how, how Loki turned out is, uh, is this kind of fascinating figure who can be a great villain, but from his perspective is this, uh, is this amazing bundle of uh, resentment and mischief and uh, genuine love for his family, all, all warring with each other. In a beautiful package. <laughs> yeah, I can't take credit for can't take credit for that. That's, uh, that's Tom Hiddleston's parents all the way. <laughs> so let me just ask you real quick: when you were writing about, you know, for Loki, when you were creating that, did you know that he was going to become like a fan favorite and still be going strong to this day? I mean, you never, you never know how how those things are going to going to turn out. I mean, I mean, I had the inkling that okay, if we do our job right, the, this is this is going to be a this is going to be a character that fans like because you know fans love Loki in the comic books. He's uh, he's a fascinating character. He's a fascinating character there, but. It's always this amazing alchemy of writing and directing and in particular casting. And when the perfect actor has the perfect part, it just takes it to the next level. It's like, you know, Robert Downey Jr. is, is uh, Tony Stark or Hugh Jackman is, uh, is Wolverine. Those are, just, those are just iconic pairings of, uh, of actor with character. And I, I think you, you, had a, you, you had a similar, uh, a similar thing going on with, with, uh, with Chris and Tom and, uh, and their characters. And not only with uh, Loki, but with Coulson. I mean, such a character that uh, survived Avengers even after he died and even got his own TV show out of it because fans loved him so much. The Coulson Lives hashtag took off and here we are. So thank you. Yeah, I, I, I mean, Coulson, you know. Coulson was uh, was this this character that uh, I, I don't know if you know the story. It, we needed a shield. We needed a shield character to be front and center in, uh, in in Thor because of the fact that Shield played such a prominent role. But uh, but Sam Jackson was in the middle of a very uh, high stakes uh, high stakes uh, contract renegotiation <laughs> at the time. So they said, well, you know, you can have S.H.I.E.L.D., but you can't have Nick Fury. And we're like, well, we need someone. And, and we went back and looked at it, uh, at the first Iron Man. And, you know, Clark Gregg is such a terrific actor. And in this very kind of small part, he just popped. 
and was this very memorable character. And, and mm-hmm. we, we, we went back to Kevin Feige and Craig Kyle and Ken and said, well, can we have Coulson? And it took them kind of a second to remember who that was. And they're like, <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, we like that guy. Uh, so, uh, so there, so there you have it. I know he also, he, he plays a, a prominent role in, uh, in Iron Man two. Those were kind of, I, I think those those two productions were going kind of uh, kind of side by side, informed each other that uh, that that everyone everyone ended up wanting more Coulson. Well, I mean, I second and third that, and I'm very grateful because I really love Phil Coulson, really love Clark Craig, so I'm really biased on this topic. I wanted to ask you because you know when you go over someone's IMDb and you see what they're credited for and how they're credited and in some cases you're credited as a writer and sometimes you're credited as a screenplay or teleplay writer and i guess i was curious as to the distinction between these different things can you kind of go into what that means what your role is there yeah those are very the the different things the the written by screenplay by story by um in the in the different variations on those are very specific credits that are determined by the WGA, often after uh, a very uh, uh, high stakes arbitration that goes on. It's kind of like writer. Co- it's it's kind of like taking your screen the screenplay to court and uh, having three impartial judges decide who who um, who made the most contributions to it. And the different titles reflect kind of different levels of involvement in the final product. You know, a story by or a shared story credit means that you means what it implies that you laid down the, the laid down the bones of the of the underlying story, but not so much of your work survives into the into the final screenplay in terms of dialogue and specific characterizations and things like that. Screenplay credit is much more the the latter. It's the dialogue. It's it's the uh, it's the individual scenes. It's the characters in in particular. And then you know, written by is when you get the is when you get the whole shebang. They determine whether there were other writers involved or not. That the the great majority of the contribution to the final product came from you. Right. That's cool. I really appreciate you kind of. Going into the weeds here, because um, you know we we fans we just see the credits and we're like, what? Okay, sure. Uh, yeah, and, f- and those credits are those different credits, by the way, are worth a lot of money. A lot of times in your contract, different uh. levels of payments are tied to how much credit you end up getting on the final product, and it also determines um, the amount of, if any, of your residuals after the fact. So writers tend to take arbitrations very, very seriously. Wow. Okay. Because okay, a lot well, of money and prestige is, is, is riding on them. Well, going further into, uh, into your IMDb credits, uh, I see things like consultant and story editor. And again, I mean, I can come up with my own idea as to what that means. But how, does that, how, how do you contribute with those jobs? What, is it, what are you editing? How are you editing it? What are you consulting with? You know what I mean? Uh, are, you, the, are you providing facts or... Yeah, what you what you're describing are mostly TV credits, and okay. and 
TV credits are very specific in that, you know, the story editor isn't necessarily editing story. It's much more of um, when you when you see those credits, it's much more like ranks in the military Um, as a staffer on TV show. You go you start as a staff writer and you go up the, the kind of chain until you reach executive producer, which is at the very which is at the very top. That's the showrunner almost always has an executive producer title. And it goes, if I'm remembering correctly, um, staff writer, story editor, executive story editor, and then you go up to producer level, and that starts co-producer, producer, um, supervising producer, co-executive producer, and then executive producer. And then just to make things more complicated, you also have a credit called a consulting producer, which, um, which is what I was on Thor. And what that is, is that's, that means that you have a producer title, but you're in, in more of a consulting capacity and you're outside of the chain of command. So it's it's very complicated, but it's but again, you know, money and uh, m- money and prestige are attached to those titles, and and typically what happens, although that's changing, is that each season, if someone stays on staff of a show, they go up one, they get bumped up one one title. Sometimes they get bumped up more than one title, and sometimes they stay at the same title for, for more than one season. But, but you have people, I, I have a f- friend who, um, who's on the show NCIS, which has been on for a billion years. And he started, you know, he, he started as an assistant, you know, in season five, I think. And now he's an executive producer because he's been on so long. Uh, okay. You have Beth Schwartz, Beth Schwartz, who started as an assistant on uh, the first season of Arrow. And now she's running the show. In, in its last two seasons. Okay, so um, what changes not only the, with the title, but with the job responsibilities from where you start and where you continue on? What's tacked on uh, as you like like a consulting it, producer? It's it's not standard. Um, it's it's not standardized. On on some shows are very egalitarian, and the the staff writers essentially act as producers and get to produce their own episodes. That means being on set while they're shooting to to um, consult with the director, and that means being in the editing room consulting with the editors and looking at cuts. Other other shows are very rank conscious and you don't get to do those duties of being on set and getting to take an active role in post-production, which is where a lot of stuff goes on until they have that producer title. And then in in some cases, the showrunner like doesn't let anyone else besides him or herself do those, do those roles. Even if you have a, uh, a fancy pants, uh, uh, co-executive producer title. So while in theory you get more responsibilities in in production as you as you go up in the go up in the ranks, in practice it very much varies from show to show. It's it's every every writer has every writer in every room has its own very unique culture, as it were. Yeah, well that's great. Well, and then of course, let's talk specifics. You are writer and producer of Rim of the World, which is coming out next week on Netflix. So, congratulations on that. It's coming out that. this Friday. Yeah. Oh, coming out Friday. Thank you so much. You're right. Yeah, it's uh, 
it's uh, dropping May 24th. The 24th. Yes. Okay. I'm so sorry. Uh, so no worries. We are so excited about this. It's a fun, like, kids and aliens and end of the world and action. And the the trailer is phenomenal. The script, phenomenal music. Some really fun moments. How did Rim of the World come to be? Um, Rim of the World came to be because I grew up in the 80s. And uh, I grew up loving all of the great kids and teen adventure movies of the 80s. I'm talking E.T., I'm talking Explorers, I'm talking The Goonies, I'm talking Stand By Me, Back to the Future, the list goes on. And it was bumming me out. They seemed to stop making those movies. And and the conventional wisdom in Hollywood became that people didn't want to, that people didn't want to see kids and teenagers and adventures anymore. They just wanted to, they just wanted to see adults. I remember going to Disney and pitching them a, a movie with a kid protagonist. And they said, no, we don't do those. Could you, could you reimagine that character as maybe being Jack Black um, <laughs> instead of a kid? That's a big leap. <laughs> Yeah, no, it's, it's like instead of a child, have it be a man-child. I mean, think for a second about the Night at the Museum movies. Yeah. If, those, if Night at the Museum had been made in the 80s, that wouldn't have been Ben Stiller. That would have been a kid sneaking around in the museum after, after dark. It, it frankly makes a lot more sense with a kid, with a, uh, with a kid protagonist, but that's yeah. just not where, where movie making was. So I, I decided I was going to bring it back. <laughs> bring back those movies by writing one and, and hopefully writing it well. And my agents and my manager said, don't do this. No one, no one will <laughs> buy it. And luckily about two thirds of the way through writing the script, um, a little show came out called stranger things uh-huh. and became mm-hmm. the biggest, uh, the biggest hit that Netflix had ever had. And, and so it felt like the winds might be changing and the tide might be turning back in that direction again. I became a little more hopeful. I became a little more hopeful about it. And then um, after I wrote it, I, one of the places where I took it was to um, McGee's company, Wonderland uh, Sound and Vision which is run by a really smart and tough lady named Mary Viola, who had just produced McGee's previous movie for Netflix, The Babysitter, which had done monster numbers for them. And um, Netflix was really eager as to what McGee's next movie with them would be. And I took the script in and said, I think it might be this. And Mary read the script and she agreed. And, uh, then it took almost a year to uh, to set it up and to set up everyone's deals. And then once those deals were finally set up, we were filming like three months later. You know, uh, Netflix takes a while oh. to say yes, but once they say yes, it's it's they, they kind of write you the check and let you go make the movie. So that was the story of uh, of, of how how it came together and and the the particular setting. I like summer camp movies. Those the they don't make those anymore. My kids go to summer camp up in the San Bernardino Mountains, and while I was while I was taking them up one summer, um, I, I kind of had the, this idea like, what if kids were stuck here when an alien invasion happened and had to, had to function without the adults and uh, without their phones and without GPS? And that was kind of the little the little germ that the uh, that the whole movie grew from. 
This podcast is brought to you by tvserieshub.tv, your site for entertainment news, reviews, and interviews. Now back to the show. I'm also a child of the 80s, and I remember every one of the movies you were talking about and love them all. And I, I too, miss that, uh, you know, that genre. Uh, I, I kind of get the sense that in this time that, you know, kids are even kids are more sophisticated. They have a more sophisticated look at, you know, TV shows. So you look back at the cartoons of the 70s and 80s and 90s and you can, you know, it's they're they can be pretty cheesy <laughs> and even the remakes of those cartoons they've added a lot more sophistication to it so how have you incorporated that sort of that feel so that you know adults can watch these uh can watch room of the world and enjoy it and kids can watch it and enjoy it how have you factored that in i guess in two different ways one by making sure that this movie was not set in the eighties, like, um, like super eight or stranger things or, um, or even, um, the most recent transformers movie, um, with Haley Seinfeld, Seinfeld, ah, can't pronounce your last name. Sorry. You know, it was really important to me that this was an adventure that, that featured contemporary 21st century kids. And then the other way that we did it was with with calibrating the tone, which was an ongoing process. McGee has a, I would say, an edgier, more irreverent tone than than I than than I tend to gravitate towards. And McGee and a very talented young uh, young writer he works with named Jimmy Warden um, did their own pass on the script and uh, made it a little edgier and, uh, and, and amped up the humor and, um, and did some things like that. And then once, once we did, and once we were shooting and even after we were shooting and editing, it was always this balancing act of how do we balance the edginess with kind of the, the kind of warm hearted sweetness of the, of the Amblin tone that, uh, that the, that the script was, originally written in and it kind of um it, it kind of went back and forth between those poles and i think by the end we found a place in the middle where you know it's edgy enough and funny enough that uh, that contemporary adults will enjoy it but it's but it's still very kind of you know warm-hearted and uh life-affirming at the, at the same time uh, i will be interested to see if audiences agree well, it, like I said, the trailer definitely already has that feel. I mean, I think one of my favorite moments was the kids getting in the in the car, <laughs> and and it's just so it's just fun and and looks really great. And I'm curious though, working as a writer producer, you've done some obviously huge. We were kidding about indie movies, <laughs> some huge superhero movies. How does working with Netflix to produce this movie? really differ from doing some of these big box office movies? Um, it differs in several ways. It, it differs both in the production sense where I, I would say they, they empower filmmakers more and uh, let them make the movies that they want to make, make a little more that that's, that's kind of what they have to offer. Uh, what or one of the things that they have to offer um, filmmakers. Another thing is they will make movies in these kind of areas where the, the studios have largely abandoned in favor of 
a hundred and you know, it's, it's either a $5 million found footage horror movie or a $150 million tentpole action movie and nothing in between. I, I feel like the mid list movies, um, you know, romantic comedies, thrillers, kid adventures, although this is the first one of those are, are kind of moving over to Netflix and the other streaming services. So that, so that was kind of what it was like on the production end. And then, and the marketing end is very strange because um, Netflix doesn't, for the most part, doesn't really believe in marketing their things far in advance because they say the, the audience will get frustrated if they see an ad for something on Netflix and they can't go home and watch it right then. So all of the marketing seems to happen like in the two weeks before and the week after the, uh, the movie or the TV show drops. So that's that's very different, and it takes a little getting used to. But you know, there's no arguing with the amazing success that they've had, and you know that's that's one of the reasons I'm out here beating the drum is uh, is so uh, hopefully uh, hopefully Rim of the World doesn't get lost in the shuffle with uh, all of the other uh, all of the other content out there. Gosh, I would think honestly that they'd want to drop information, you know, a, a month or so in advance because. Think about with the Avengers uh, Endgame. There was like a year-long clock. People were like, they're scheduling their lives around when it would drop. They were like, if you call me when this movie, when I get my tickets, I will drive over you with my car. I mean, so it's kind of funny that uh, that in some cases that people are like, okay, well, let's schedule this out and show people when it's coming, and then so people can get excited about it and and uh, kind of market it in their little their schedulers, and then in this case it's like no we'll just let people know right before it happens <laughs> not that is not how they, yeah they they roll uh, they roll differently well it, it seems to be working <laughs> um it's yeah it's it, netflix is very different it's 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 with and but the part of that is um you know, movies are movies, especially big event movies, are so front loaded now. You know, sometimes they make half of their total uh, total box office in like the first week or two. So that opening weekend is all important. And you know, with Netflix, it's like it's going to be on there forever, uh-huh. <laughs> you know, or as long as Netflix is around. So they're mm-hmm. gonna. So in 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 their mind, the first week that a movie is out is kind of it. it that's their marketing campaign, and they're much more about building. You know, kind of kind of kind of building their audience uh, of their movies rather than expecting them to come out of the gate huge. I see. I see. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. I'm kind of switching gears a little bit, but I was thinking about you know as a writer, I'm sure not everything you write actually makes it onto the screens and i was wondering if um you could share with us something that you wrote that you absolutely loved from anything you've done but was cut for time or for you know pacing or whatever it was uh from anything you've done and if you say that it was a colson scene i'm going to start crying right now i'm just giving you a heads up (laughs) um you know, it, inter- I mean, their whole script, most writers' careers are like, you know, the, the, the movies and the TV shows that you actually see are the part of the iceberg that's above the surface. Um, mm-hmm. And what you don't see is the 80% of is the, you know, four or five projects that you wrote that didn't go for everyone that, 
that did go for for as many reasons as as you can name. So there are whole scripts that I've written that never have seen the light of day and never have gotten made. Some of which may in at some point in the future, and some of which are uh, are definitely dead and not coming back. And in terms of actual scenes that uh, that I wrote that didn't, there is there's actually um, there's several scenes from from the first Thor that we wrote and are on the deleted scenes that kill me that they're in the deleted scenes and they didn't make the final final version. In particular, there's this. Um, there's a scene between uh, uh, Thor and Loki where they're kind of messing around together right before Thor's coronation where he, where he gets the hammer. And in my mind, that scene was super important to kind of establish the deep and sincere bond between the, uh, between the brothers before we see that relationship broken. And uh, I'm, I'm glad it exists as a deleted scene, but it's one that uh, if, if I were to beg for something to be included in a director's cut, I'd uh, I'd certainly beg for that one. So you are kind of like the ultimate in like nerd, uh, nerd cred, to be honest. Uh, <laughs> between working <laughs> in the MCU, X Men, I mean, some people's favorite sci fi Fringe, you know, The Flash, um, and then doing uh, Rim of the World, and there's a DC film. Uh, that you are maybe working on, Booster Gold. Can you tell us anything about that, or is that like, are we all hush hush? I, I, I can, I can, I can. I, I'll be very honest with you. I wrote several drafts of the script. The um, the director who's attached to it, Greg Berlanti, um, has proclaimed himself very happy with it, and it's kind of somewhere in the Warner Brothers DC development cycle. I have no idea where. Okay. So it might come to life. And, and the thing with, DC, with Warner and DC is that their strategy for their films seems to change like every yeah. month or two. So <laughs> I don't know what's going to happen with it. <laughs> yeah. They don't have their four phases planned out in the same way. No. <laughs> no, they're, they're kind of the opposite. They're, they're like, it's like everything's got to be dark and gritty. And, oh, maybe not. Um, like, oh, Shazam, you know, people like Shazam. People like Wonder Woman and Aquaman. Maybe we should make them more like that. Everything's going to be in the same continuity. But we're also going to make a Joker film that's completely out of continuity. It's, <laughs> it's, it, it's, very, it's very confusing. But, you know, I, all I can say is I'm, I'm very proud of the script. I think if... Um, if it does get made at some point, I think I think fans will uh, will be very happy with it, and uh, you know I'm keeping my fingers crossed. Yeah, well, I hope so. He's a character that's more, at least in the comics, tends to be very more irreverent. So I, you know, we which of course Shazam was such a hit, and and those sorts of things. So I mean, I obviously don't know what kind of take you took on it, but fingers crossed it gets made. Um, yeah, <laughs> it, it was a much. It was a really fun. It was a. It was a. It, it's. This the script is a lot of fun and uh and it is a little more irreverent. It's a little deconstructive of the it's a little deconstructive but in a in a fun rather than a than a dark way. And it's about a uh about a kind of uh, douchebag with a heart of gold who uh who <laughs> has to become a hero. Who has to become the hero that he's been pretending to be. Oh, I love that. <laughs> I'm like, come on, DC, hurry up. <laughs> 
Well, I mean, uh, is this something that could be considered for, you know, the DC's streaming service versus a a full movie production, uh, like a theater production? Or is this, what format are you looking to do? Or obviously Greg Berlanti, we all know that. I, I wrote it as a uh, as a uh, two hour movie. You know, it's a two hour movie. It's not as huge as uh, the Zack Snyder films. It would probably be less. Ex- you know, it, it'd be closer in cost to Shazam than uh, than to uh, Justice League. <laughs> but you know, there's a, there's a world where you could you know break that into two pieces and turn it into a uh, turn it into a pilot. I I I just I simply don't know and. The, 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 that is, as they say in the military, above my pay grade. <laughs> uh, there's one question that I, I like to ask our guests, and I've gotten some really neat answers to it. So basically, I wanted to ask you if you could somehow uh, open a rift in time and uh, send a message back to your younger self about your career, about life, about whatever. What kind of advice would you tell your younger you? What kind of advice would I tell to my younger you? Prepare for ups and downs. <laughs> and, uh, and when you're up, do not count on it continuing because it is a, uh, it is a roller coaster. A Hollywood career is always going to be a roller coaster ride. It would be cheating to give myself the advice to do anything differently. And I wouldn't want to do anything differently because I'm pretty happy with where I'm at right now. And I don't want to, I, I wouldn't want to mess that up with some kind of butterfly effect. But I, I think I could have, uh, I, I could have saved myself some heartache if I'd, uh, if I'd been more prepared for uh, the, uh, the roller coasters of ups and downs that is a uh, uh, long Hollywood career. I think that's phenomenal advice. <laughs> that's probably good advice for anybody to follow. I want to know if you were dropped into a camp uh, and aliens attacked, how long could you survive? Ooh. I don't know if I would be the first one to die, but I think I'd <laughs> probably be uh, hiding in a janitor's closet, uh, <laughs> uh, waiting for them to uh, waiting for them to go away. That would be my uh, that would be my survival strategy. Is uh, is uh, is, is definitely hunker down and hide, and then uh, and then you know like uh, Laura Dern in Jurassic Park, eat all the ice cream in the freezer before it melts. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> I always just figure if the internet was out, I'd just go like lay down in my driveway and be like, I guess that's it. Just take me now. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's funny. You exactly. Stand like that's you. most of us. <laughs> It's funny you say that, Kelsey, because I'm always the one when I'm watching these movies, I'm the one saying, don't run right in the open. The guy, you're going to get shot. You're going to get killed. The alien shooting right. I'm going to be that person. I'm going to be the one going, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? And then poof, I wouldn't even make the credits. I'd be an extra. I'd be, <laughs> I'd be uh, body number you're right. No one, no, no one zigzags. No one knows how to zigzag. When right? <laughs> All right. Well, Zach, we appreciate you coming on. We do have one last question that we do ask all of our guests, and that is your favorite fan interaction you've ever had. As a fan or as a writer? From which side? Uh, Usually as a writer, like fans interaction from you, although we would totally listen to the other. (laughs) Both. 
I'd be um, happy with both. <laughs> let me say, my favorite, my uh, as a as a writer, it's it's tough to single out any one any any one fan interaction. But but frankly, if if someone tells me that something was meaningful to the that that something that I did was meaningful to them, um, that really that really means a lot to me. I, I know I had a couple of people after I did an episode. Uh, an episode for the flash called the runaway dinosaur, which was uh, basically about Barry finally processing his grief over the death of his, his mother. And I, I had people reach out to me who had fans reach out to me who had themselves lost parents and said that the episode had given them a lot of comfort. And, and that really, that really meant a, meant a tremendous amount to me, you know, it's, and, and I, 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 had people in, you know, people in interracial relationships uh, tell me that the portrayal of the Iris and Barry relationship meant a lot to them. That they felt that mm-hmm. that they felt kind of seen and validated by the by the larger society, and that that was really meaningful. As that was really meaningful to me as well. So the, those are the kind of things that you that you really live for as a uh, as a creator and as a fan. I would say. I was, I was both in my capacity as a writer in a uh, in a room with Steven Spielberg, and oh, um, as we were developing, we were, we were developing a project together that was one of those many ones that didn't end up coming to fruition. But it was worth it because at one point um, I got to say, uh, you know, as we were breaking the story and, and talking it out, I was like, it's like, yeah, it feels like it. it um, we need a, a really great speech here, you know, like the one that Quint delivers and uh, and um, about the USS Indianapolis and Jaws. You know what I'm talking about? <laughs> you know, just me, and, and and he just kind of looked at me and smiled and I was like, "Yes, I do." Remember, <laughs> <laughs> like, "Oh yeah, that was you." Just like all of my favorite movies, that was. You. Yeah. Oh, I love that. I'm so glad you shared both because that is brilliant. <laughs> well, thank you so much for having me on this show. And uh, I'll be very interested to hear what you think about the movie when, uh, when you see it. Thanks for listening to another Nurks podcast. Rate us, leave us a review on iTunes, and follow us on Twitter at Nurks of the Hub. And let us know what you think. 